cloud, and uh, we'll we'll pray and, and get going. Uh, thank you, Lord. There's much to be learned from your uh, uh, your man James. You had him right under the inspiration of your Spirit to people just like us who need to hear the practicalities of living out the Christian life. And so, as always, we gather in your name, Jesus, asking for your Holy Spirit to enlighten and instruct, uh, perhaps correct, if we need. You know best, uh, so we lift our hands and our hearts and our minds to you and ask you to fill them with your truth, way down to the inmost part of who we are, that we might live whole lives like you, Jesus, talked about. Uh, full and 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 uh, and abundant, and so we give this time to you, and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right. So there. Uh, last week we we ended up. Um, you know, we just discussed ten uh, positive imperatives about what heavenly wisdom might look like, and it ended with that appeal to, you know, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord so that he can lift you up. Uh, an appeal to humble ourselves. And, and now he's going to focus, James is focusing, as we begin in verse 11 tonight, on behaviors that are actually anything but humble and, and trying to understand our proper position before the Lord. So here we go with verse 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Slander is the word that's used here in the NIV. And it's about speaking harshly of, or we might fill in the word gossip. Um, Mine says speak evil. Pardon? Mine says speak evil against. Okay. Yeah. The the Greek even implies running someone down. You know, a phrase, yeah, not as over with your car, but running them down with your words. And usually the verb that's used here in the Greek it means to slander someone when they're not there to defend themselves, hence the kind of leaning towards gossip. And this, the sin slander, noun, is condemned throughout the scripture. And it is specifically listed among the sins of the unredeemed pagan world in Romans 1. And you all remember Romans 1. That's a nasty picture of what the world looks like. And slander is one of the sins that's rolled in there with those group of sins. We're kind of back to the tongue again. Yeah, yeah, isn't that? You know, we can't seem to avoid the tongue. <laughs> okay. Um, most accurately, uh, we can interpret it as um, uh, he who speaks harshly of his brethren, that's a broad sense, very objective, just he who speaks harshly of people in general, or judges his brother. Very specific, very, very subjective. And so the law he's referring to is not the Mosaic law, but the royal law that he talked about, the royal law of love back in chapter 2, verse 8. And James says, obviously a person cannot love his neighbor as himself and also speak slanderously about him. And he says, anyone who breaks this kind of law is, in essence, setting himself above the law. I am judging this law inadequate or not applicable to me. And again, obviously, if you are breaking or judging the law, you're not keeping or doing the law. And James adds one more level. He says, and what's more, when you pass judgment on the law as if it is not applicable or adequate, you are passing judgment on God, the one who alone is lawgiver and judge. So James doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. He just says, don't judge. We get some, we get some ideas other places why we cannot judge. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that you can't judge because you lack perfect information. That verse says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light to what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And so Paul says, you can't judge because you don't know the whole story. Some of it's hidden away. It won't be exposed until light. And you definitely are not very good at judging the motives of other people's hearts. John um, uh, John records that, that uh, Jesus, and you remember the scene where, you know, the woman caught in adultery and he's going to, the, the uh, lawgivers want to chuck stones at her. And, uh, and in John 8, 7, Jesus, you know, when they kept questioning him, he straightened up Jesus and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her and to judge her. And so one of the reasons you and I cannot judge is we lack the personal integrity to judge. Who are we? And finally, God alone is the lawgiver and judge. We lack the authority to judge. So slander and judgment, uh, that's not humility. And the words that come from it do not originate in heavenly wisdom. So, you're right. James is, he's, he's again with the words about words. Observations about verses 11 and 12? Where is the, is there an easily identifiable borderline between this type of judgment, which is condemned, and, and elsewhere in scripture, I mean, it says, you, brothers and sisters, you will even judge angels yeah. uh, you know are you are you not able to judge these things for yourself for you one day will judge even the angels so there is there is a concept of judgment which seems to be okay and a concept of judgment which seems to be really bad is there a line in there sure that's easy to identify well and, and I think you know, when, I, when, when, when it says we're going to judge angels or when we, you know, are able to even in Galatians where Paul talks about, you know, if someone's caught in the sin, you know, mm-hmm. you who are, are spiritual going, there's an element of, of, of righteous, if you will, discernment that goes on there. Shouldn't, you know, Paul writes to Corinthians and says, Should, why are you people going to court <clears throat> That's what you were referring to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he related it to angels, but the practicality was you people ought to be smart enough to you know to make to make practical judgments amongst each other. Uh, okay, I think that comes from wisdom we ask for. Right. Uh, you know, the gathering of information from witnesses, yeah, I which is different than you know, I am going to judge you in a uh, in a well I mean, James is talking about here in a slanderous way I just want to undermine demean and destroy you for usually what why why do we put other people down mm-hmm. usually because it's that that unsettled thing inside of me that says I don't feel very very big so I need to put you down to at least my size and maybe smaller if I can. And, mm. okay, and that's not a, that's not a judgment on behaviors or actions that need to be discerned. That that's a, that's a character judgment. That's a motive judgment. And, and I think, I think there's a differentiation there. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And, and I mean, you, you, you touched on this, but it's, uh, Jesus said, love your neighbor as I have loved you. It's kind of tough to love your neighbor as Jesus loved you if you are gossiping about them and slandering them and maligning them and speaking evil of them, right? Yeah. 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 And we go back, we go back to the last chapter where James talks about, you know, how can we, how can we curse God and destroy our fellow man? 
Yeah. How, how yeah. can they come out of the same mouth? Curse God. No. Bless God. And Bless God. <laughs> Man. That was a good catch. Nice job, guys. Okay. Yeah. Good. So he's got some words about words. Now he wants to talk about planning without regard without regard to God. Okay, and back up a second. I've got a real problem with judgment. Oh. And I pray about this all the time. I mean, I don't go out and talk. Oh, look at her. She's not doing that right. And But I'll, I'll look at something and I'll think, gee, that's not right. They They could be doing that so much better or, you know, or talk about school since I taught for 32 years. There are teachers that go home at night. They're 15 minutes after the children, which is allowable, not a book, not a paper, not in anything. And they come in as late as they possibly can and not be late. And I always found myself so judgmental about them, wondering how they could possibly do the job that they were supposed to be doing when I would lug home briefcases full of papers to grade and lesson plans and be home at night. Our dining room table never be, was never a dining room table. It always had <laughs> lesson plans spread out or bulletin boards. or mm-hmm. And I have a very bad habit of looking at somebody else. And maybe they're fine with the way they're doing it. Maybe they're doing the very best job or better than the job I was doing. But I have a really bad time about judging. And I ask God to get this out of my mind all the time. Well, boy, do I recognize that, Vicki. Because um, <laughs> you've got you know, at least two things going on at once there. Okay. Uh, one is, you know, an observation of someone, you know, and trying to evaluate, are they doing the best job they can for the sake of the children? It does not appear so. They could do, you know, I know from my own experience that more could be done, okay? But they're they're not doing that, okay? And then it's, at that point, it's easy to go, to slip into, you should be doing that. What's the matter with you? Uh, and... And I think that's where, you know, God would redirect us to go. You don't know their motives and you don't know their situations. And so wouldn't it be a really good idea to, to pray for them that, that they would uh, get new insight or that your spirit would move in them to, to get a bigger view? I, I was just reading today, uh, getting ready for Sunday's message, and uh, yeah, you know, about it, was our conversation. it was our conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very much so about being, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in traffic. I've worked a long, hard day and, and now I'm stuck in traffic, but I'm looking forward to getting home and having a meal and kind of kicking back and relaxing. And then I, I remember I don't have any food at home, which means I'm going to have to stop at Publix and of course, everybody else is at Publix because they're all stopping because they forgot to get food earlier and it's crowded and there's that stupid music in the store and people are in the aisles and then I have to get up to the check stand and I have to wait and and it's that whole thing about, you know, why, why are you people in my way? Uh, okay, well, so I, one of the observations, you know, was as I'm driving in the traffic, for instance, and I look at that big SUV that's blocking me, perhaps I ought to consider that maybe the person driving that has been in a horrible roll-your-car-over accident in the past, and their psychiatrist told them, for your own mental health, buy the biggest, toughest vehicle you can buy. Oh, well, had thought about that. You know, the the lady in the in the checkout stand in front of you that is blocking your goal to get through, who just seems to be, you don't know what kind of a day she's had. 
you know, maybe she works at the DMV and actually helped your husband resolve an overwhelmingly big problem today, and she's exhausted. Uh, so, so part of it is observing and going, they probably could. Let me pray that they will maybe be able to, because I really don't know the whole story, and I really don't know their motives. That's one. The other one comes from my counseling side and from my own personal journey that says, for whatever reason, be it integrity and a God calling, or be it my horrible sense of I'm not good enough, I don't measure up, so I dr- I'm driven to be a perfectionist. Whatever it is, I am working my tail off long hours, lots of extra work to do the best I can. And when I see you over there getting the same paycheck I'm getting and not hauling all that stuff home, it makes me feel bad about me. And therefore, I'm going to judge you. I want you to suffer as much as I'm suffering. That's, uh, that's true to a certain extent. Yeah, sure. yeah, there's kind of a blend usually there. Oh, say, yeah. We're um, all there. With yeah. those. And I am a perfectionist. I'm terrible. I'm. I get you, I'm sister. Just awful. Yeah. But, but I think that's where, you know, this is what, what John was talking about. You know, on one hand, are we able to judge the performance, evaluate the performance of others? Well, yeah, assistant principals and principals judge teachers, okay? Uh, but should I compare myself necessarily to the other teacher next to me or the other pastor next to me or the other and go, listen, I'm working here and you're just getting by and, and that makes me judge you because I don't want to feel bad about me. I have to take a turn on that one with God. I don't feel so much that I feel bad about me. I just, it aggravates me. Sure. And I'm constantly doing the, come on, Vic, judge not lest you be judged constantly. Yep. But I yep. just have a bad thing that I'm, it's just part of me that I, maybe it's because I am a perfectionist. Yep. But you're not, you're not alone. Not very easy. Blessing and a curse, that whole perfectionism thing. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Vicki, uh, I would say that I spent a significant amount of my career in a very similar situation, looking at my coworkers and wondering why are they why are they not going above and beyond? Why are they? I was holding them to my standard for myself. I wasn't holding them to my our boss's standard for us. I was holding them to my standard for myself, and I got frustrated with them. And there was a period of time where God began then to do a work on me. And I'm still in the process of it. I am not there yet, but we're much further down the road where instead of being frustrated with them or angry with them for not working as hard as I would work, uh, God has created the situations where I could mentor them to be the best them that they could be. and And he said, John, it's not fair to ask them to be the best John that they can be because they're not you. And, 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 and that was a, that was a, a long, and it's an ongoing process still working through that. And, but it's, but it has been a considerable amount of relief um, now that I'm not holding them to my standard. Good, good. good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Vicki. Appreciate your honesty. Right, sorry to get you off the track, Jim. Go ahead. No, no, you were right on the track. That was, that was very much, I think, what, you know, what this passage was uh, was about, and, you know, and your concern, you know, I appreciate that you did not talk about these teachers, you know, and slander them without them there to defend yourself. But that internal struggle is not always much better. Uh, and so I'm glad you wanted to, to work on that. Good, good. Okay, let's pick up verse 13. Now listen, you who say, tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Mm-hmm. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin to them. <clears throat> okay, so there are evidently some people here in, in James's readership who are successful financially. And James is going to start chapter 5, now the next chapter, by strongly addressing rich people. But perhaps there were merchants in, in the assembly here uh, that were wealthy or planning on being wealthy. And trade and travel was very brisk in the days uh, of the Roman Empire. But once again, James says, we've got a problem here with humility. Uh, in total pride, uh, he says, the venture is totally planned, it's fixed, it's settled, it includes the location and the longevity and the amount of profits. And the Bible never condemns an honest initiative and planning and hard work and profit, but it does condemn a conceit that totally forgets or discounts God. Uh, Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, and eight, eight verses there, 10 to 18, but they're summarized in this. My power and my strength have produced this wealth, to which God says, not. But it's easy to get into that. Everything is going well. The house is good. The cars are paid off. You know, the, wow, look what I did in my own strength. And so here's some guys, some individuals who are, are practical atheists. They believe in God, but obviously not enough to involve him in the process of life. <clears throat> With a touch of irony, James adds, you silly people, you don't even know a thing about tomorrow, much more a year from now. And, and it's pretty much the same attitude that the parable Jesus told about the guy with the bigger barns, you know, there in Luke 12. So big crop, bigger barns, greater security, relax and enjoy. And Jesus said, this night your soul is going to be required of you. You don't know what tomorrow um, Yeah. I was working, working with a, a young couple today. Uh, and they're working through some marriage issues, including finances. And he is a very, he's a very rigid, aggressive, save for the future kind of guy and has been very successful at it. Uh, and she is, I like a budget. I don't want to overspend, but can I, can I buy, you know, uh, makeup, please? <laughs> you know, uh, and so we just, we had to come at it with a, you, you plan for the future, but you live in today. And he's busy planning for the future at the lack of anything about today. And I said, that's great. Good for you. What if you die 10 years from now? Well, your widow will have all kinds of money and assets. However, um, so and James says, and you know, you're a myth, a vapor, uh, kind of like steam or smoke. And the verse wording is really significant. James does not say life is a vapor. He says, you are a vapor. Don't, don't generalize it into the life is a vapor. He just writes to them directly and says, no, you are a vapor. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. It says, you know, we count our lives in years. God instructs us to number our days. Psalms 90 verse 12. And so James says, instead of being so, so adamant and confident, says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, and the first thing is, if it is the Lord's will, we will live, period. <laughs> we don't have to. James, I'm saying, 
go any further. He says, remember, your life is a vapor. So say, if it is the Lord's will, I'm going to be alive tomorrow. Oh, and then if, if I'm alive, because that's his will, then in his will, maybe we'll do this and that. So while we could do a whole entire study on the will of God, and we're not, uh, James is addressing their pride and their perceived self-sufficiency. You know, we, and James says, you should still plan, but hold the plans loosely so that if you come up to a closed door, you don't panic or despair or curse God. There, that's an appropriate use. But you simply go left or right as the Lord leads. It makes it a lot easier to make the journey. Because if I get to the closed door and I'm, I've already determined what's going to happen down to the detail, and now there's a closed door in front of me, I'm tempted to try and break down the door and curse the door and curse the God who put up the door. And James says, it's a lot easier if you just hold it loosely, make the plans, but be ready to go left or right. And James says, you're boasting, you know, uh, you're making more of yourself than the facts warrant. Uh, the Greek word used here was originally the characteristic of a wandering quack. He offers cures that are not cures. He boasts of things he's not able to do. And these people are acting as if they can control the future, while in reality, it rests solely in the will of God. So while the specific will of God, for example, how a business trip to a city may go, may play out as time progresses, there are some things, some general things that are applicable to all people that definitely are the will of God. And James moves on to address a, a new level of pride. He says, you know, there are some things you know what the Lord wants you to do. They are the will of God. You know. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You know you are to forgive as you've been forgiven. You know, he says, but you choose to disobey it by omission. Not I, you know, I didn't kill anybody. Yeah, but were you, you know, were you angry? And he says, in this case, it's not what they do, but what they don't do that becomes sin says, so if you know what to do, now you don't always know, you don't know what's going to happen in the city, that'll play out over the next weeks and months. But today you know you need to forgive somebody and to know to do it and then choose not to is sin. And it will probably draw the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12. Okay, what about this whole, I got a plan. I think we're all guilty of that. Yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, I have the deposit down on a trip to uh, the ARC experience next fall. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yep. But I still made the deposit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jim, I get wrapped around the axle on this a little bit when, when, uh, when, I, when I think about the scripture that says, talks about the guy who's going to build the tower, and he doesn't count the cost, and he doesn't make sure that he's got enough people, and he doesn't, he does not properly pre-plan. Um, and it's, and again, in in that mode, it's all about him and his actions, still not 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 being completely dependent upon God. But then if he, if he doesn't have enough money to finish it or have enough people to finish it or materials to finish it, then everybody's going to call him a fool for starting something that he couldn't finish. No. When I read this, and, 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 you know, there's numerous, there's a number of examples that, you know, dance on the edges of both of these things. But I get, I get a little bit of, I, I get a little bit wrapped around the axle here knowing which way to lean or, or if there's tension between them, understanding what that tension is and how to apply it in my life. Yeah. I'm thinking that it's not wrong to make a decision or to make plans, yeah. but 
rather without the making them without the without consciously being aware that they're all up to God, that God has the final call on it, that he, he has the final word as to whether you're even going to have a tomorrow. Yeah. We don't get to be inactive. I mean, we're right. not called to sit on our rumps and do nothing. Right. Right. Not. I mean, I think that, I think the differentiation right here, even in, in these verses in James is, okay. He says there are some people that make extensive plans, mm-hmm. never consult God, are convinced that in their own strength they're going to happen exactly like they did it because they made plans. And then he moves down and he says, and there's another person who makes plans. He makes plans to travel. He makes plan almost virtually the same plans except he prefaces it with an attitude, uh, an attitude of humility, you know, that says, I'm going to do this because I'm a smart, you know, God made me a smart dude. Okay. But I understand right from the get go that if, if this is only if the Lord wills, you know, so uh, two guys are making almost identical plans, but, one has an attitude that's going to cause him to be angry and embittered and maybe even commit suicide if it doesn't go well at all. And the other one says, I'm, I'm moving forward, understanding that at any moment I may have to make a left turn. And that's okay because God's a really smart guy. And I'll, I'll make allowances for the possibility that it may go differently than I think because God's the bigger, smarter guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's how, how tightly we hold on to our plans. You know, that we're going to make it happen no matter what. Oh, yeah. You know, because we're bound and determined it's going to happen. Because I know God's will. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or I don't care. Or, or yeah, care. yeah, 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 yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So, Another part of this that has uh, caused me some consternation. And this goes back to what we talked about a moment ago. Uh, I had, uh, there was a guy on, on our, on our project and he would go to lunch and he would literally say, you know, if it's God's will, I'll be back after lunch. Yep. And a significant period of the time, he never showed up after lunch and he, (laughs) it was never God's will. (laughs) I'm taking the afternoon off. And you know, and and then I read this scripture. That was before I had read this scripture. This is like, well, this is where he got it from, but I think he's taking advantage of God. God told him to take off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, However, you know, listening to to Mike, our our you know, worship youth guy. Uh, it is a it's a pretty regular thing off his lips to say you know God willing, mm-hmm. and, uh, that is that is not a trite expression for right. him. You know, I, I you know I understand Mike to be uh, a, a man who probably understands this portion of scripture or the principle of it anyhow pretty well. That says I. I do plan on being back, you know, Sunday to lead worship and to do all that. Uh, if God wills, God will, and I'll be here. And which is an openness that says, and if God's not willing, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be here. Um, yeah. I heard that a lot at work, especially like at the end of the day, people would say, see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Heard yeah. that a lot. Yeah. And I know all of those can become, you know, catchphrases, but I think James is, is trying to get us to embrace an attitude of humility that says you really don't know what you're, what today or tomorrow holds. Lean on God. Yeah. Good. Other thoughts about that? The, the close. Yeah. If a man knows what is good, and doesn't do it, that is, that to him is 
sin. Yeah. The, the, the act of omission. I often think of sin as an act of commission. Absolutely. And I seldom think of sin as an act of omission. I know that I should fill in the blank. Yeah. And 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 yet I don't I don't do it. And and that uh, as as I as I was reading reading up this afternoon for this evening, that really uh, that, that 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 stuck in me. Yeah. Well, and it's it's kind of got a parallel, if you will, in in Romans fourteen. Romans fourteen. Uh, Paul is dealing with the, you know, one man eats meat, another man doesn't. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are three, to me, there are three principles, makes a good three-point sermon, you know, that occurs throughout Romans 14. And he says, okay, we've got this problem where some people do, some people don't. And he says, first, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You know, Paul challenges these people to say, uh, I need you to own it. It's a gray area. Go have a good, long, honest talk with Jesus about it. You know, look at the scripture, find everything you can that's already been written down, then go talk to Jesus about it. And be prepared for Jesus to say, no, you shouldn't. You know, this is very, very often this is a, discussion that has to go with should I or should I not drink wine you know and we can look up through all the biblical things and then say ultimately Jim you got to go talk to Jesus and be fully convinced in your own mind not of what you want him to say but what he said point one and then you get down to verse 12 and it says so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God so Here's how serious that conversation needs to be with Jesus about whatever it is. Yeah. Know that when you, you're going to give an account, and if Jesus looks at you and goes, well, hey, what about that thing you were doing? you got to be able to say, well, Jesus, you and I talked about that. Really? And then the very end of 14 says, you know, uh, basically, if this is what you and Jesus have worked out, as to be, you know, truthful in your life, it's of faith, then do it. Because everything that does not come from faith is sin. So Paul basically says the, the uh, you know, that, that there is a sin of omission. <laughs> that says, if you and Jesus have talked about this, and all of a sudden you back away from it, that's sin. But well, wait a minute, you know, so, yeah, James is saying, it's not just commission. Mm -hmm. It is very often omission. Yeah. Yeah. Do I sin if I murder my brother? Yes. Do I sin if I don't love my brother? Yes. Yeah. 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 Very good. Mm. Okay. On to chapter 5, where he's going to smack those rich people. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Okay. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James, James progresses from pridefully traveling to make money to the judgment on the ungodly rich. And James does not say it is a sin to be rich. Abraham was a wealthy man, yet he walked with God and was greatly used of God to bless the earth. 
James is concerned about the selfishness of the rich. And it's interesting, he doesn't call them to repentance here. He just says, you are going to be judged. If they knew what they were doing, he says to the rich, they would weep and wail in terror or in fear of the judgment that awaits them. And he's basically kind of warning, you know, these Christian readers, do not envy such rich people. Now, whether these people were actually in the church or not, we're not exactly sure. He, he doesn't address them right here as brothers or sisters or, you know, he just says, uh, you know, you rich people. Um, so it might be that he's just, you know, making an outward condemnation, not an inward observation. And James, when he talks about things rotting and corroding and stuff, uh, if you if you know, you know, uh, he's speaking metaphorically, uh, wealth does not actually rot. I mean, for instance, the rich people's clothes, they're not moth-eaten because the rich take care of them. Gold and silver, they don't really rust or corrode. But James says, as far as the rich are concerned, as far as these things that are supposed to make them rich, these things are like a lot of rotten, moth-eaten, rusted stuff that just deserves to be thrown out. And he says that selfish desire for earthly things is a corrosion that will eat into your body and your soul. The poison of wealth that has infected them has infected them and they're being eaten alive. And he says, the treasure you are relentlessly heaping up for yourself is just going to feed the fire that ultimately consumes you. The rich saved their wealth to help themselves but James says, your hoarded riches will only testify against you. Jesus spoke about the accumulation of wealth, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin do destroy. Mm-hmm. Break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And while Jesus talks about moths and vermin and stuff, he's, he doesn't talk about you know, our gold and silver rusting and corroding, but he is saying when you hoard it up, it's of no use for eternity. And, you know, when James talks about, you know, you have hoarded it up in the last days, James, really, much like Paul, that we're just we're just mere months, years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he ascended into heaven. When he talks last days, he's thinking it's tomorrow. Jesus is coming back tomorrow or maybe next week. There was that, that great anticipation, so, which is probably beneficial because we tend, we tend to think of stuff way out yonder. But James was saying, what you're doing right now, you haven't got time to do. Uh, he says, with, with the pending return of Jesus, because it could be any more right now, you ought to be using your wealth for good, not, not holding it up. And Jesus said in, in Luke 12, 15, he says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Uh, and again, the Bible, how are we doing here? Yep. Okay. The Bible does not discourage the acquiring of wealth. In the law of Moses, specific rules are laid down for getting and securing wealth. A good gravy. The Jews in Canaan own their own property. They worked it. They benefited from it. But the Bible does condemn acquiring wealth by illegal means or for illegal purposes. So now James moves into a cry against social injustice. He says, not only, uh, you know, not only, you know, have you got too much with, you know, and you're hoarding it, he says, but the way you got it, you got it at the expense of helpless laborers. Mm-hmm. Wages have been delayed, held back, not paid in full. 
you, you may remember, you know, the Jesus's parable of the laborers in Matthew 20 probably gives us an idea of, of how that work situation uh, played out. Laborers were hired and paid by the day. They had legal contracts with their employers. They were supposed to get paid at the end of the day. In fact, there were very specific rules about it, one of them being Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15, where it says, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So the salaries, James says, the very salaries themselves that you've stolen are crying out to God, like Abel's blood cried out from the ground against Cain, Genesis 4.10. And James says, and the workers themselves, not just their wages, but the workers themselves are crying out. And God hears the, the cry of the oppressed and will judge righteously. So he says, you've lived in luxury and self-indulgence, which is soft luxury. Comes from the root word that means to break down. It's soft living, which in the end saps and destroys a man's moral fiber. And self-indulgence is like wanton. It's to live in, in lewdness and to satisfy my own lusts. And James says, yeah, you're just fattening yourself up. You're high living is connected with the day of judgment that is coming in due time. And again, if Jesus comes next week, judgment's not far behind. And then finally, James says, and you know, it's good to be rich because you can control the courts. Back in James 6, James, <laughs> James said, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? And the courts in James's day were apparently easy to control if you had enough money. The poor workers could not afford expensive lawsuits, so they were just beaten down every time. And the workers had a just cause, but they just couldn't afford justice. Instead, they were abused and ruined and perhaps literally killed. So Paul tells us how the rich are supposed to live again. It doesn't say you shouldn't be rich. It's the ungodly and selfish rich. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, Paul says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant. That's what we're finding here. No humility. Nor to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of that life that is truly life. And, and James just kind of summarizes this whole, you know, money and possessions thing. Jesus, Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, Matthew 6. You'll either hate one and love the other, You'd be devoted to one or despise the other. You just can't serve God and money. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all <laughs> Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So James is just saying, hey, you know those rich people? It's okay to be rich. There's guidelines for how to acquire wealth, how to utilize wealth. Talk to my brother, Paul. He wrote all kinds of stuff about it. But if you are selfish in that, stand by for heavy rolls. Okay, thoughts about rich people. I saw a neat quote today when I was looking at this. And it said, the end of specially fattened calves is that they will be slaughtered for a feast. And those who have sought this luxurious life and selfishness are like men who have fattened themselves for the day of judgment. Yeah. And I thought that was very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. 
in the Milbit section, uh, he, he talks about, you held back the wages of the people who made you rich. And I thought about uh, the children of God under Pharaoh in Egypt. And the day that God said, I have heard your cries. And in the, in the same way, the, the laborers in the field, their cries are going up to the Lord of hosts. They're going up to God. And, and think about what God did to school Pharaoh and everybody there. It's, 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 he, he holds, he holds taking advantage of people in high regard. Don't mess with my kids. And, you know, James is talking so much about, you know, about humility. We went from a whole discussion about the 10, you know, imperatives about what a humble heavenly life might look like. And then he jumps right back into, but. Yeah. And I, I really think, read between the lines, he is saying, you know, it would really be better for you <clears throat> not to be rich. <laughs> Better to be humble and dependent on God, but in a good relationship with God and your fellow man, yeah. than to be rich and out of fellowship with God and standing in judgment because of the way you've treated your fellow man. And it's just really hard to be rich and keep that in balance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Look at us. 757. All right. I think we're good for one more next Wednesday, folks. We'll pick up at James 5-7, talk about the power of patience, and then we'll wrap up that chapter talking about prayer. And it'll be, be good stuff. Thank you. Any other thoughts or comments before we roll out tonight? Thank you for taking the time to, to join us. I appreciate that. Well, thank yeah. you for Take all the of the time to prepare. To prepare. Yeah. yeah. This is this. It's 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 not without significant investment, and it is greatly appreciated. Oh no! Good, good, good stuff. I like that. Thank you. All righty. Caller. Well, let me let me pray and uh, ask God to pull you back out here, um, Father God. Once again, we are trusting you to ensure that your word does not go out void. And we've read it and we've discussed it and shared about it. And, uh, and seed of your word has been uh, sown in our hearts and minds. And now, as always, we ask you to, to cover it with soil and to water it and bring the sunshine upon it, that it would bear fruit in our lives, not just for our own benefit, which is secondary, but for your glory and for the impact it could have on other people. Thank you for your abiding love for us. Thank you so much. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Good night, Bye. everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.